This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Raise your hand if you've been at the seminar this week with Holy Sexuality. Keep your hand up if it's been a blessing to you. Did you learn anything? Wasn't it incredible some of the testimonies that you heard? The people that were willing to, to expose their, their underbelly, if you would, to you. It's been an incredible blessing for us as well. During the 15-minute uh, talks that we had yesterday with some of you that came to us, I'm even more solid in the understanding that God wants us to talk about holy sexuality. So you have handed us your questions, and we are prepared now to answer those questions for you. We invite you to quickly come and take a seat. We're going to go right into our Q&A. But before we do, I just want to let you know that if you have young children, if you're concerned at all, we are going to be talking about the issues that are affecting you. And that may sound a little bit graphic. And so again, we want to give you the opportunity to go ahead and make that decision whether you want to stay or not. But we're going to answer the questions that you've asked. But before we begin, we want to pray. Can we all bow our heads together? Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to, to speak to the issues that are really taking us out. And Father, we are all sensitive human beings, and we, Lord, we want to answer the questions in a sensitive way. But Lord, we don't want to compromise your standard in one iota. And so, Lord, as we ask the hard-hitting questions, Lord, give us compassion. And I pray, Father, for those individuals that may be in the audience that have experienced pain and suffering and loss, or even just have questions, questions about purity, how to save themselves from marriage, or even, Lord, what kind of conduct should they have while they are married? Father, we want to answer those questions. And so I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Remove any of the enemy's conflicts, Lord, for us. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will come and will attend our ways. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Scotty Mayer is going to be our moderator this afternoon, and we'll get right to the questions. So some of these questions are obviously pretty difficult to answer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the questions that you guys sent in, and I'm going to kind of point them at one or two of these guys so they can answer you. And of course, remember, if you have any further questions, please, please, please seek them out and talk to them. They're all very, very easy to approach, and they will probably talk your ear off and take your whole night. Just kidding. But if you have any questions, please come and see them afterwards. So let's start with the first question. Danielle, how can I stop castle building in my mind? Sometimes I go too far before I realize it. It doesn't come to a point of arousal, but it builds up in my heart to expectations that leave me sometimes hurt. I do this without realizing, and my brain is so trained to go there by habit, I try to memorize scripture, but it's still happening. Well, in addressing this question, um, this is a struggle that I myself actually have had. And it's still a struggle for me at times. It's really easy to have habitual thought patterns. And I just would encourage you to commit to that struggle. You know, there, there are times when we 
you know, we fall down. But that's just part of learning how to walk. And so I would say commit to that struggle and just keep trying. Don't give up. Um, in the scriptures, it says that if you sweep your heart clean and then you leave it that way, then it's easy for seven demons to come in. And so this person is saying that they're trying to put scripture in their heart to kind of help them walk away from this. But you have to remember that the first step is sweeping your heart clean, right? So I would encourage you to pray and ask God. Every morning I pray and I ask God, help me to become mindful of the thought processes that are going on in my head. Don't let my head just wander here and there. Please help me be mindful of what I'm thinking and also to um, search my heart and see if there's any foothold in my life that's bringing my mind back to these things. Pray that we have the mind of Christ. I wanted to add to that. Proverbs 16.3 gives us an insight that not only do our words influence our actions, but our actions will influence our words and our thoughts. Uh, it tells us, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. So even if you don't feel like it, even if the thoughts aren't there, do what is right. And in doing that, your thoughts will be strengthened. Next question, Mike. I am dating a wonderful Christian man who is recovering from a pornography addiction. How can I, as his girlfriend, support or encourage him? Any advice that I can have to help our relationship? Absolutely. One of the things that um, I remember in my road to recovery is it was not an event. It was a process. And that process can take time. For me, it took years to get that victory. And so I really want to recommend to anyone that's dating somebody who knows that they have a pornography addiction that the dating relationship can actually get in the way of this person's recovery. I would definitely recommend that you move to a more platonic uh, relationship until this person has complete victory in their life. And I also would like to recommend or to know that when you go into a relationship with somebody who has just come out of a sexual addiction or pornography addiction, that it is not unlikely that they would not have that trouble in the marriage as well. That's a good answer. How about this one? Ron, how can I stop a non-Christian friend from a sexual addiction? Well, a, a person can be lost with a sexual addiction or without a sexual addiction, so that is not where you would start. Jesus himself said in, uh, in Matthew 6, Seek ye first. There are things come in their order. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then understanding that we're dealing with a, a sin issue in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, speaking of the name of Jesus Christ, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And we're talking about being saved from the sin of sexual addiction. And in my own experience, when I was coming to the Lord, I remember responding to a call from a pastor. And I stood up and I took a stand for Jesus. I had no idea how I would ever get out of my relationship or escape from the bondage of sin. My first step was just to acknowledge I want to follow Jesus. And from that point on, I would take another step and another step. And the book Steps to Christ is really helpful in that. I started reading that with a margarita in one hand and a cigarette in the other, but I couldn't do it past chapter 5. 
So we do things in steps. And the first step is to lead the person to Jesus, and then things will come in their order as they truly submit to Jesus. Amen. So not just treating the symptom, but getting to the heart of the matter and having that relationship with Jesus to begin with. Mike, my dad has cheated, and now I believe he's cheating on my mom again. I hate it, and I don't want a relationship with him because of it. She has accepted his cheating. Should I? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, because you love your mother, my recommendation would be that you go to your father and that you would encourage him. Because you love your mother, what you want to do is you want your mother to have the husband that she deserves, and you certainly want a father that you deserve as well. And so my, my suggestion is that through prayer, that you go to your father, that you lift him up, you encourage him, you walk with him until the moment that he gets the victory and he's restored to your mother once again. Do not give up. Do not ostracize him. I say instead be specific and win him back to your mother. Amen. Amen. I'd just like to add to that, you know, I think it's really important for us to remember the, the very specific place for forgiveness. In the Scripture, it tells us if we are coming to the Lord and asking forgiveness of Him, we have to lay down any unforgiveness we have for someone else. And so you have to re realize that if you're holding on to this grudge and this hatred towards your father, that that's not, just that's not just coming between you and your father, but it's also coming between you and God. So ask the Lord to heal your heart and help you find forgiveness for Him. Mike, what are some practical ways to overcome watching pornography and masturbation or anything along that line? Some of the um, framework that the Lord gave me was I actually had to realize, I had to acknowledge what the sin was doing in my life. So I have this two-step process I call admit and submit. Remember, the heart is, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. So I was always trying to find ways that I could cheat myself into my sin. My mother quit smoking after 50 years, and she said that she felt like she lost her best friend. And I thought to myself, how ridiculous. And then the Holy Spirit said to me, Mike, your best friend is killing you, like, your cigarette, like cigarettes is killing your mother. And I started to realize that until I came to grips with the fact that I loved my sin, then I started to pray differently. And I said, Lord, help me to love what you love. Help me to hate what you hate. And just by the two-step process of admitting it, because just because I admit it, now I'm able to take that and to submit it to my higher covering so that he can break its hold and authority over me. And as I did this one, two step, I started to get real victory in my life. Philippians 2 verse 5, I think sums it up. Jesus asks us, he says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And as I started to give him permission to work, as I started to take the dirty thoughts inside my mind and I said, Lord, I give you authority over these thoughts, then he was able to break its control over me and I got the freedom. I didn't have to pray for three days. I didn't have to fast for a week. He wants to give you the victory now. Amen. You know, it's very hard to get rid of any problem if you can't even admit that there is a problem in the first place. So I think that's very practical, not only in the realm of sexuality, but in the realm of everything. We have to come to Jesus and admit where we need that help. It's very true. Um, Wayne, how can we encourage more openness about these topics in our church? 
Well, some of us at this table are older than others. And uh, yes, well, <laughs> as you can tell by a number of the questions that are coming in today, this is a long-awaited topic. I lived in the time of which this resided in the dark. In fact, for 150 years of this denomination, we've been relatively silent on sexuality. This is why Coming Out Ministries exists today. I didn't have resources when I was young. I didn't have uh, anything to go to. I didn't even have a person that I could actually confide in about my same-sex attraction. Today, there are resources, and today, actually, God has preserved our lives for such a time as this so that we can come into your churches and into your schools and talk about this in a respectful manner and in a biblical manner that will, uh, will point you to Jesus and the intimacy that is possible through Jesus Christ. So go to comingoutministries.org and invite us. Ron, can you speak from a biblical perspective about oral sex within the marriage context? I would really rather not. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a topic that was assigned to me. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the Bible does not specifically speak about this subject, oral sex, uh, but there is a passage of Scripture from which we can draw a principle in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Uh, the, the concept of mutual consent is brought out in this text. And since the Bible does not speak specifically about the issue of oral sex, we have to use a little um, uh, common sense and apply some principles. We need to make sure that where there is mutual consent in the sanctity of marriage, in the privacy of the bedroom. Uh, neither spouse should be forced or coerced into doing something they're not comfortable uh, doing. Um, however, I think there are some things to consider, and this, of course, you do all understand I am not a sex therapist, and I am not a sex counselor. I'm a pastor that has never had to deal with this particular subject before. Um, but I, I just have to think there are some things we have to consider if we are involved in something like that. Is it demeaning to the other spouse? That would not be a, a godly thing to demean the other spouse. Uh, if there is shame or guilt, it certainly does not fall within biblical principles if it is done in a way to um, prepare the other spouse for the full-blown intimacy, uh, then that's something to consider. Uh, but also, it could borderline on the realm of say, uh, sadism and masochism if you're not careful, where there's lordship over the other. That is totally not what God intended in equality in marriage. And that having been said, I think we can go to another question. <laughs> so in a, a nutshell, basically what, I, what you can kind of draw out of the principle is obviously if, if selfishness is involved, it's not like the love of God. 
correct? Yes, and that, thanks for bringing that up because in, in so many cases where oral sex is um, performed, it is a self-centered act. Someone is serving another person for a self-centered purpose. And I think God created sexual intimacy to be something mutually enjoyed and uh, without shame, without guilt, without the feelings of being demeaned. Now we can move on. Mike, how do you respond to a friend or a relative who insists on being called by the name associated with a gender that is not their DNA gender? Saying her instead of him, this happens in both workplace and family situations. I would like to reach out to this person in a salvational way, yet lovingly. Can you speak on that? Yes, um, I've had opportunities of, um, of people that have changed their names and are calling themselves transgender. As a matter of fact, one woman has actually changed her birth certificate. In the state of Florida, she changed her, her gender from female to male, and she hasn't had the surgery yet. But really, the bottom line is she's, her DNA is still female. It didn't change her DNA just because she, she um, changes her body. And so I'm trying to be restorative. I'm trying to point her to Jesus Christ. And so I try to find any way that I can to relate to her, to connect with her. And so while I wouldn't necessarily call her according to the gender that she, she wants to be called, because her DNA is still female, and we know that according to the word, our words have the power of life and death. But what I would do is I would acknowledge the name that she's changed herself to, or I would try to stay away from using gender-specific statements. But what I want to do is I want to reach out to her heart. I want to show her who Jesus Christ is. And according to the word, we're supposed to be uh, wise as foxes, but harmless as doves. And so again, remember, to call somebody, you know, by their changed name, because I have a friend who refuses to call his daughter by her new name because it's not her gender. But really, are we missing the opportunity to really relate to her and to draw her into who Jesus Christ is if we stand on ceremony by refusing to call them by their new name? And a lot of times, you know, some of the struggles are they, they have confusion with connecting to people. And so that just fuels the fire if, if there's that disconnect. So. That, that, that's wise advice to actually, you know, connect with them, therefore reaching their heart. Dr. Tim, could you give us your clinical observations about anal sex? I wanted to share first, uh, actually something that Camille Metz shared with me uh, earlier today. Uh, I had the privilege of taking care of his daughter, actually, at a GYC. And he shared something very positive with me, which is really a quote about canvassers, but I think applies to this discussion very appropriately. This is GC Bulletin, March 3rd, 1895, page 438. Remember, as the people who purchase a book will read it, having before them a mental photograph of the face, conduct, and spirit of the one who sold it to them. And this silent influence will weigh heavily in the decision they make for or against the truth. I believe that that is true. When you're talking about things of an intimate nature, it may not even matter the words that you use, but how you approach the person. They're going to remember the three things, your face, your conduct, and your spirit. And I can tell you, when talking with individuals, I had the privilege of working at San Francisco General during my residency at Stanford. 
And the majority of my male patients uh, often were gay. Uh, we saw some lesbians as well, and they would open up. They would talk about various things. Um, but as far as my clinical experience, the majority of my training would be like a forensic type of exam. Someone is worried about child abuse, things like that. And anal sex actually doesn't just make physical changes in the body, but actually changes neurologically the body. There's a reflex we recognize as physicians called the anal wink, and that's usually in trauma, to make sure that those nerves are intact. Normally, if you would get near that perineal area, there would be a reflex contraction uh, of the anal sphincter. Now, with repetitive anal sex abuse, that actually reverses. The neurons change, the reflex changes to a dilation. So it's what we call a pathological reflex. Another thing to keep in mind is the anatomy. Uh, that is a very, very thin area, which is why we as physicians can use things like suppositories. We can give medications there because it's absorbed very readily. There's really only a thin layer, in some places like one cell layer thick, between the outside and the bloodstream. That's another way we can check the temperature. We can check your core temperature because the bloodstream is right there. And that, of course, is the extreme risk for things like HIV, for things like viral illnesses, because it's basically one cell between the outside wor world and the bloodstream. And so it's very readily transmissible. In fact, that is the fastest and most deadly way to transmit HIV basically known is, is that way sexually at least. There's of course IV drug abuse, you can get it from a needle stick, things like that. There are other ways, but as far as in the sexual realm, this is the highest risk behavior. Uh, but there's other things that happen too. Uh, areas that are what we call a mucous membrane, which is that area, with repetitive trauma, it actually undergoes things called squamous metaplasia. That can happen in other areas, the esophagus, et cetera. And those things can become precancerous. Uh, and I'm not saying that that is the only way you could get cancer or whatnot. Uh, but of course, you could talk to urologists, OBGYNs, uh, things like that. So I would just want to say from a, a medical standpoint, it is not, that tissue is not designed for repetitive trauma. It is not designed to expand and contract so readily as other areas of the body. And I think that goes along with Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And as I say, we have to approach this with love and compassion. Some couples do this um, as their form of intimacy, as a form of birth control. Uh, so you have to approach them uh, with, I believe, logic, reason, uh, and also principles in God's Word. Romans 1, 26 and 27 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So we look at something which is against nature, means against anatomy, against physiology, against a design. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. So when, there, when you look at God's beautiful design, you can see how the anatomy fits together in His design. And when it kind of goes outside of that context, exactly. obviously we're more susceptible to um, things that God obviously did not design and, and disease and, sure. and those kind of things. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Tim. 
Um, Ron, how do you heal from sexual scars and be able to see sex in matrimony as pure and holy in the sight of God? Uh, I was just thinking about a text with that question, the text in Micah 7, verse 19. Uh, speaking of God, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and Thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And I know that if I uh, did not fully trust and believe that God looks at me as though I had never had that past, I could never stand in a pulpit, I could never be a pastor, I could never, you know, minister, um, because I, I look at that as another person, a person who is, has died, he is gone. Now also, I am married. Uh, when I came to the Lord, and I accepted this within 12 months, I was married. And this is a credit to my wife as well. She looks at me as though I had never been there. And that's a testimony to her faith and her trust. And she, in our 22 years of marriage, she has never brought up my past in any, uh, in any shape or form in this way to make me feel guilty or inadequate or whatever. And so if we just simply accept that God looks at us as though we had never done these things, we are new creatures in Christ, and we can go forward with our heads held high in the dignity of the royal children of God. And aren't you glad that God does not sit there and remind us constantly of the sinful things that we've done? I mean, how would you ever let a wound heal if you kept picking at it all the time? So that is very, very true. Wayne, actually, let me, let me, let me answer this one. Danielle, my friend who is a lesbian is having a very hard time at home with acceptance and has become depressed. She's not a Seventh-day Adventist, but attends our Bible studies. How do I attend to her in, regard, in regards to her sexuality? Well, I think that, you know, just like with anybody else, we don't, send to, we don't tend to sit in Bible study and focus on a person's sin um, and wonder what they're doing and, and how we can, you know, fix that. I mean, with some people, it's more readily available that they're struggling, and we definitely want to reach out to them, but we have to realize that if this person is in Bible study, they're where they need to be, right? And so I would just encourage you to pray like my mother prayed. Whenever I was out in the world, my mother didn't say, oh, Lord, please bless Danielle and give her peace. She said, Lord, convict her of her sin. Help her to realize her need of you and um, bring her to the foot of the cross and do whatever it takes. And so if you're praying that kind of prayer and you're also asking God to give you opportunity to speak light and life into that person's life, then God will bring that conviction into their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And you will be available to, to give her answers to the question that she needs. And if you allow God to bring that about in His timing, then it will be beautiful and it won't be something that pushes them away. You know, this next question is, is, I think, very important for a lot of us. Wayne, is it a sin for two Christian men to be in a non-sexual romantic relationship? I, I mean, not a lot of us. I mean, a lot of us have friends and acquaintances. I had the opportunity of seeing these guys actually speak at a church, and I was amazed at how 
packed the church was. And after we had kind of talked with people there, almost every single one of us knows somebody has a friend and, and is interacting with this. So give us some advice, Wayne, on how two Christian men, can they be in a, in a ro- relationship? Well, obviously God created us to be relational. Um, in the Word, we, we have the representation of the, of the friendship between Jonathan and David, who said they loved each other greatly. But that is not the love, it's not the kind of love that maybe uh, people are trying to tr- transform that into today as though there was some kind of sexual relationship. It's not a sexual relationship. However, as someone who has suffered from same-sex attraction, it can be a slippery slope. If I find myself engaging in a friendship where I'm spending more time with someone of the same sex than I'm spending with Jesus Christ. And so it, it is a very slippery slope. And I have people ask me sometimes, so do you mean that I should um, choose Jesus and, and be alone for the rest of my life? The question I have to answer for myself is, is it safer for me to spend that quality one-on-one time with Jesus or to find that I need to have uh, social relations with someone of the same gender. God is bringing about healing in my life. He's rewiring me for for same-gendered friendships, but I find that what, what is most important is my time with Jesus Christ. I live out on 55 acres in the middle of the country for a reason. I am one-on-one with Jesus Christ, and he will never leave me or forsake me. Amen. You know, I want to bring this up. There was a question and, and answer. Uh, I don't know if a lot of you got this, um, but we can pass these out. And Oh, they've been passed out. So if you would fill those out, you can fill them out as we're, as we're going along, and please leave them because uh, this is vital information that we want to hear back from you guys and see um, um, what some of your, your questions and things are and rating. Um, Ron, as someone engaged to a man with a decade-long pornography addiction, I find it difficult to reconcile the worldly idea of this addiction as quote-unquote a sickness versus the biblical idea of this is sin as, an adult, as adultery. If I see his actions as adultery, how will I find it in myself to forgive him? Well, first of all, uh, we're looking at definitions based upon human reasoning versus definitions based upon God's reasoning. Uh, when we look at uh, this addiction as a sickness versus the Bible definition of sin, well, we, we also need to uh, acknowledge that uh, this would be, uh, sin is a sickness, uh, and sin itself is addictive. You know, in John 8, verse 36, we read that if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And, you know, uh, a few minutes ago I mentioned that I had married, and I know when, when I married, uh, fairly quickly after coming out of the life, uh, the gay life, friends of mine thought that I was not being legitimate, and friends of my wife thought that she had lost her sanity, you know, for marrying someone like me, because of this very thing. How can you, uh, how can you trust, and so forth? But there again, if we're looking at adultery as a sin issue. I just go back to the fact we need to let that go. If a person is converted, then that slate is clean. 
don't hold that against that person. Um, if this is still a problem, according to the question, it's hard to tell whether this is still a problem, uh, and this person is engaged to this man, maybe there needs to be more time. Uh, at least they're not married, and that would be a real difficult problem. But if it's just an engagement, make sure that you both are ready and that there is mutual trust in that relationship before you go to that next level. Danielle, if your spouse is a porn addict, is it a good idea to restrict or monitor their technology to prevent those behaviors, or will that just worsen the problem? Will that not work? I think that those kind of restrictions can be very beneficial. Um, I think it might be hard for them to come to you um, if you're the spouse, because you're not really you're not necessarily an objective source of accountability because coming to you, they know that they're gonna wound you by what they've done. So if they have a more, a more um, kind of distant source of accountability that's not gonna be hurt so much by what they've done, it might be easier for them to use that source of accountability. So I might encourage you to go to some kind of, some person who you can see Christ reflected in their life, you know that they're a godly source of counsel and, you know, like a pastor, an elder or something like that, that might be a really good source. Also, there are things that you can put on your computer like covenant eyes and stuff like that. So I might, I might suggest something like that instead or in addition to, to your um, support to them. Mike, here's the next question. What can you do if a porn-addicted spouse is requesting porn-related role-playing, dirty talking, or act, those kind of activities during intimacy that I am not comfortable with? Well, right there, I think you answer the question. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it says, defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent. But also, when you look at it, would you talk dirty to Jesus? And these things come through my mind remembering that Jesus washes us white as snow. Isn't that right? And so our conduct should be accordingly. If you can invite Jesus into your marriage bed, you know, what kind of conversation would you have if, if you realized that Jesus and the angels were actually there? Not only that is, is I believe that sex between one man and one woman in holy matrimony is the, is the most intimate level. As a matter of fact, one of our testimonies said that, that now she has a relationship with her husband that she is known as she is known. That's the ultimate intimacy, is to be completely real, authentic, and transparent. And so why would role-playing have any part to do in a Christian bedroom? Wayne, could I have a disorder or an unnatural addiction if I've initiated sexual flings and created many sexual encounters on purpose? Mm. Well, I think it's very important here to remember that God is a God of order and Satan is about disorder. Um, it's important that we keep our focus on, on the righteous rather than the unrighteous. And I would suggest instead of thinking so much about the intimacy um, and flirting and trying to initiate a fling, how about turning your focus upon the intimacy that's possible with Jesus Christ, spending time with Him, getting familiar with His righteousness, claiming, letting Him impart His righteousness in your life, covering yourself with the blood of Jesus Christ, and, and living your life for Him. 
when you are in a safe state with Jesus Christ, He will bring to you the intimacy that He might desire you to have with someone in the flesh. There is a film that has been circulating called Seventh-day Adventists. What are your observations? Maybe. Dr. Tim, can you speak on this? Yes, I'd, I'd like to speak on it, actually. Um, since I'm not a part of Coming Out Ministries, I was asked here to answer clinical sort of questions. But interestingly enough, I did engage Deneen Akers uh, about this film, uh, having a great uh, ability to do that on a public forum with her. And let me first say that she was very cordial. She was very professional. Uh, she answered immediately. My question, and really my question was, why would a documentary like this is being portrayed as a documentary, only focus on one side of that issue and not include people who once were gay but had overcome that bondage, overcome that sin, and now we're living uh, not only even married lives but celibate lives and pure lives in Christ. And, and she answered and she said, well, that is true. That is another element uh, of this question, but we decided that we were going to focus on couples that were actively homosexual and in the church and active in Sabbath school and things like that because that's the area of controversy. Whereas the individuals that you're mentioning who had come out of the homosexual lifestyle have overcome that lifestyle and now are married and not uh, indulging in same-sex attraction or behavior, they are not considered an area of controversy. And then my answer back was, well, you were given that opportunity of people who would have been included in the documentary on the other side of the issue. And uh, her answer was, well, that individual had just come out, and really that wasn't our focus. And then my answer was, well, then it's not really a documentary. It's more of an opinion uh, piece, like most films are. And I thought that she was very kind about it, very professional, uh, but I think she really said it herself. That's not really what a documentary is. You know, any good film, you get to witness a change, a complete change. Any of the stories any of you have ever really, really liked in Hollywood or the movies or anything, you watch those individuals change. And I, I would agree with you too. I think it would have been amazing to see this transformation that Christ is able to give to each and every one of us, and that would have made it a powerful film, but they missed that. Wayne. As a parent of a young woman in the past year, she told us she is a lesbian. I know I need to love them both, but I do need some practical help. Remember that God loves us while we're still sinners and that there's no condemnation. And yet it's so important that we love with the love of Jesus that doesn't compromise the truth. So your daughter and her partner uh, should be welcome in your home for, for dinner or to spend the weekend. They can be designated that they not sleep in, in the same room or the same bed. But your extension of your love for your daughter can be also extended to others that you come in contact with. And it's that, that love, uh, as was in my own parents' lives in the, in the years that they prayed for me, uh, praying me back to Jesus Christ, that your treatment of the individual makes you appear to be a safe place to come to for that time of which they begin to contemplate what Jesus truly is offering them so that it's not imposed, it's not forced, it's not clobbered into them, but it is a choice that happens directly from their heart. 
Ron, how do you determine if pornography, homosexuality, bisexuality is an addiction, especially if it is not done all the time and very rarely? Well, all the time is a relative term because we don't know whether they're talking about constantly or every minute or every hour or once a day or once a week or once a month. Uh, so it's a relative term. Um, but the thing about sin itself is that sin is addiction. When we read that Jesus shall set it, uh, call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. So they're being set free from something. In Romans chapter 6, for he that is dead is freed from sin, verse 7. In verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. In verse 22, uh, but now being made free from sin. This is harped on repeatedly in Romans chapter 6. So we just need to understand that sin itself is an addiction. And these uh, areas that are brought up in the question, uh, we have already covered quite clearly that they are sin issues. Danielle, what is God's intent for a lonely person that wants a relationship? Is he to live a life like Paul, or because he's human and, and wired to have sex, will God present someone for them? Well, I think that if you're focused on God providing you a spouse to fulfill your sexual needs and desires, then I would, I'm going to say that I think your heart's kind of in the wrong place. Humbly, that just was my experience as I started to surrender my love life to God. Those things that I thought that I needed, I realized I didn't really need those. And now I'm at the point where my love life is in God's hands and I only want to be married if that means that I will be more effective for the kingdom of God. So it's only when you have that kind of a mindset towards relationships that you will actually have a love life that's fully surrendered to the Lord and that is actually healthy in Him. I think that's about it. We're almost running out of time. Do we have time for one more? You know, there's so many questions that have come in. Actually, these questions, uh, we barely got through the list that have come in. And I just want to encourage you guys to go to the gycweb.org and find the resource sheets on, on the workshops about homosexuality. And, you know, if you have some questions, please, please, please interact with this ministry. This is something that I believe is a... a much larger thing that a lot of people struggle with, deal with, and we need to start talking about this information and getting this out. So please, please come by, visit their booth, um, and go to the GYC web, fill this out, and uh, we'll, we'll come by and we'll get them. Thank you guys for coming out. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we know you are just the definition of love. You have placed love in all of our hearts, and all we want and all we seek is that love. Lord, we know that the, the world around us has twisted that view of love, and we just pray for your clarity and your understanding. And Lord, I just pray for every soul in this, in this room here, some that are broken-hearted and 
and, and feel so empty and lost inside, Lord, I just pray that you wrap your loving arms around them. And Lord, show them that you are the most amazing object of love in the entire universe. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.